So what do we know about Obadiah, and when did he write this? We, we don't know too much. <laughs> well, I love dissecting the Hebrew names. Obed and Obad mean the same thing. Think of Boaz and Ruth's son, Obed. That means servant. And Yah stands for, is the short form of Yahweh. And you see it in so many names like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Obadiah. So, so we got that. So when we, we put it together and we get servant of Yahweh, which um, transliterated to take the actual meaning, it means worshiper of God. In case you're wondering, where do I get servant or worship? Well, think of what, Roman 12, 1. Um, keep in mind that Obadiah was a very, very, very common name, kind of like John and David are today. That's going to become important. There's many Obadiahs. There's many Obadiahs in Kings and Chronicles, of whom at least seven are different men. But our Obadiah could have been one that's not even named there. And dating the oracle of Obadiah is going to be next to impossible. Here are four popular theories. Some Jewish traditions say that this Obadiah is the one who worked King Ahab and was a contemporary of Elijah, and they date the writing around 800 B.C. I think he was a, a palace administrator under, under Ahab. Uh, other Christian scholars believe the atrocities committed to, by the Edomites referred to in Obadiah occurred during the time of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, around 587. I, I tend to go over that, although there is a lot of compelling evidence of otherwise. This would make Obadiah a contemporary of Daniel during the captivity if he wrote these words at the time of the fall of the southern kingdom. Now, others likewise say that these writings were about the southern kingdom's fall, but believe Obadiah lived 250 years earlier and saw these things in a prophetic vision recorded to them. Possible. And there is also some thought that these events referred to in Obadiah are about when the Philistines attacked Jerusalem in 790. So... We have a clear-cut, actually, I put the slide there. We have a clear-cut uh, time frame of somewhere in this, like, 500 years. Whether it was written, whenever it was written, God used Obadiah to convey his message. So, have you ever jumped into a movie or a show right in the middle and wondered what was going on? Well, reading Obadiah is going to require knowledge of the backstory. I'm going to try to explain who the Edomites were and what they did to make God so angry at them. Then after reading Obadiah, we'll look at how this applies to us today. The kingdom of Edom, as shown in this map from the time of the divided Israel, was just southeast of Judah. For the history of these Edomites, we must take a trip back to Genesis. Now, I like to make a timeline, I do, (laughs) to get an idea of what's happening when I think about scripture. So most scholars place Abraham and and Sarai about 2000 BC. Now, let's read the call to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in whom dishonor you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised to make Abram the father of multitude. Notice in the promise the part about him who dishonors you, I will curse, that will come up again when we read Obadiah. Now back to God's promise to Abram to make him a great nation. There was a problem. Abram and Sarai were beyond years to have a child. They took it upon themselves and their own understanding to figure out a way to help God fulfill his purpose. 
Um, their way, which produced Ishmael, uh, didn't work so great. But in the end, to Sarai's mirth, they got a miracle named Isaac, laughter. Later, based on this promise, Abram, which means father exalted, was renamed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now, Isaac grew up and took Rebekah, a godly woman, for his wife. But there again seemed to be a problem with the promise of God. Rebekah was barren. So let's pick it up in Genesis uh, 25, verse 21 through 26. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Okay, this time the couples did the right thing. They prayed about it. Not only did God produce an answer to Isaac's prayer, but he also gave Rebekah a prophetic explanation of what he was doing. The first of the struggling twins came out reddish and was named Esau, which was red. Not far behind was the other twin grabbing onto the heel of the first, and he was named Jacob, which means supplanter or grabber. The boys grew up. Now let's continue in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So Esau felt the birthright meant nothing. Now, at this time, at that time, uh, being firstborn meant a lot of things. Material, there was a double portion. Materially, there was a double portion of inheritance and otherworldly rights. But the birthright also carried an important spiritual significance. With the birthright came a responsibility to be the spiritual leader of the family. It appears that Esau wanted nothing to do with God, the God of his father, which comes up again and again and again. Now Esau, which means red, upon trading his birthright for that red lentil stew, Jacob called his brother Edom, which means red humanity or red mankind. Think of Adam. They share the same three letters. As Jacob and Esau's father Isaac aged, he told Esau he would bless him as, as the birthright holder. Esau either forgot the deal he made with his brother, or perhaps he had no intentions of keeping it in the first place. So Rebekah took matters into her own hands to ensure the prophecy of the older serving the younger. Rebekah schemed to have Isaac give the blessing to Jacob, not to Esau. Esau, feeling cheated, was determined to kill Jacob. So let's pick it up in chapter 27, verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
Rebecca knew of this plan and sent Jacob away for his safety. She blamed the local Hittite women as her reason to her husband to send Jacob to her brother Laban. Now, this wasn't a lie. She didn't want Jacob to follow the wayward example of his brother Esau, who disobeyed and married ungodly Hittite women. In his journey, God showed Jacob that he chose him to receive the blessing he had promised to Abraham. Years later, Jacob was renamed Israel, which means wrestles with God, and his descendants went to Egypt, first as welcome guests, but hundreds of years later, the Israelites became slaves to the Egyptians. Now, Esau, who Jacob renamed Edom, was given the hill country of Mount Seir and became the father of the Edomites. Despite the brothers making a peace, their, their descendants picked up feud. Okay, now we're at 1500. Okay, we next see the Edomites during the exodus from Egypt. So let's read Numbers 20, 14 through 21. Moses sent messengers from Kedesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardships that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt. We lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our father. And we cried to the Lord, and he heard our voice, and he sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are at Kedesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, and I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away. So Moses said, King, you're a descendant of Esau. We are descendants of Jacob. We are brothers. Please let us pass. But Edom harshly said no twice. They have no love. They had no love for their brothers. There were several other countries the Israelites had to go through on their flight to their promised land. And God was with them each time in triumph. So why not fight Edom? Well, let's read the same account in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 2, 1 through 5. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And the Lord told me, and for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. So be careful. Do not contend with them. For I will not give you any of their land, not so much for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So God said, let's be very careful. Do not provoke them to war. The Lord gave Esau's descendants this land as he gave Canaan to the Israelites, even though the Edomites still hated the Israelites for stealing their birthright. At least that's how they felt. God said not to fight with them at this time, but the fulfillment of the prophecy of the older serving the younger were coming. 
Not much is said about Edom during the time of Judges. Uh, Edom is mentioned in Deborah's song and in another recount of the Exodus by Jephthah. Okay, let's come up to the time of the kings. Edom was now subject to Israel, as prophesied to Rebekah. Uh, <clears throat> Samuel's victories in 1 Samuel 4, Saul's victory in 1 Samuel 14, 40, 47. After Saul had assumed the rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. And that would be Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, king, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. And then we read in Chronicles 18, 12 through 13, uh, David's victories. Abishai, son of Zerach, struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So notice that the Edomites maintained their land, but they had to pay tribute to King David, the older Serbian. Typically, you invade a country. Okay, now we go to the divided kingdom. In 2 Kings 8, for time context, I'll just read 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. So all I'm saying is this is the time frame of these two in his days. So that's what that means. Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zare with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded them. But his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. So Edom revolted against the prophecy, and even the northern king of Israel tried to help the southern king to bring them back under control, but it was to no avail. Edom regained independence, and Edom strengthened their acts as the house of Jacob. So let's look at some prophecy. Here are some prophets, prophecies among in Amos when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam was king of Israel. I couldn't squeeze those kings in. <laughs> and, and this is an interesting uh, prophecy. In Amos 1, verse 6 deals with the Philistines, and verse 11 deals with the Edomites. Um, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, that will be the Philistines, and for four, I will not revoke punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And in verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity in his anger, tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Teman and Basra were large cities in Edom. Now, notice the four transgressions of Edom mentioned. We will detail these four when we get to Obadiah, verses 3 through 13. Also notice the fire will come out upon the cities of Edom. These will be mentioned in Obadiah. Psalm 137, I, I think we're at the time of the fall of Judah now. Psalm 137 recounts how Edom enjoyed seeing the suffering of their brother. Raise it, raise it. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. 
In Proverbs 27, 17 through 18, shows how it is not well to enjoy the suffering of even your enemies, let alone your brother. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the, the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. God can turn away his anger from your enemy and move it toward you. Ezekiel also prophesied against Edom. In chapter 35, verse 5, he explains why, and in 7, the punishment. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave your over your, your people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, I will make Mount Seir a waste and desolation. I will cut off, cut off from all who come and go. Mount Seir refers to Edom. It appears that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, destroyed Jerusalem. When, when they destroyed Jerusalem, the, um, the Edomites joined, joined in with them and allied with them. They prevented the refugees from coming over to their land, and they either killed them or they captured them. They gave them to the Babylonians. Or, or when the Babylonians came, they would say, yeah, yeah, there's one. Go, go check those caves over there. So that's the backstory. So are we ready? Okay, so let's read Obadiah, verses 1 and 2, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and the messengers has been sent among the nations. Rise up, rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The word is going out to all the nations to do to the Edomites as they had done to the Israelites. Picture that I had on the front of Petra. Edom had many, many high cities. Let's just read. <laughs> and verse 3 The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And remember what Amos. In Amos, God said he would not forgive the Edomites for four transgressions. The first is the sin of pride. They took pride in where they lived, in the high points of the rock. They took pride in their wealth, both uh, taxing people uh, with the king's highway. They lived right in an area where, where if anything going from here had to get to Egypt or back, it, everything went through that king's highway. The they controlled that so they could tax it as people come and go. And uh, uh, they also made their, their way looting other, other cities around them, going in, including in Judah. And they took pride in their defenses. It was practically impossible for an army to fit through the clefts to get into attack. Can you imagine trying to squeeze an army through that entrance of that city? And they felt that no one could bring them down. And that makes me think of the Titanic or something like that. Uh, I don't know if it's true, that saying that someone once said that uh, even God can't sink the Titanic. Well, well, that's pretty much their attitude. I don't know if it's true that that was said or not. Verse 5. The second transgression, Edom, put too much trust in their allies. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed, would they not steal enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All 
your allies have been driven, have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set up a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. In verse 7, you have no understanding means you will not even detect it. You will not see it coming. As the Edomites helped the Babylonians to capture their brothers, escapees in their land, little did they know that they were getting spied on for the next takeover. When nations get together in leagues, they need to be careful about these leagues because they can take them away from their own best interests. And we should heed this too. In verse 8, their third transgression, the Edomites put trust in their experts. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed. O Taman, you that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So the Edomites put trust in their experts. They were known to have worldly knowledgeable men, but these experts don't know God. Are there any nations today that put their trust in experts rather than God? Fourth transgression. They treated God's people poorly. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day the strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crosswinds to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. I don't know if it's this translation, but do not means you have. <clears throat> in verse 10, the Edomites did not stand with their brother. Verse 10 and 11, they sat and watched God's people get abused. They allowed the plundering of God's people. When you stand by and condone ungodly behavior, you are guilty of the same offense. In verse 12, they were verbally abusive of the people of God. They exalted their brother's defeat. In verse 13 and 14, they jumped in looting in the middle of a war. They killed or handed over refugees to the Babylonians. So can we think of any countries today that might ridicule the people of God? Verse 15. This is the verse that links the transgressions of 1 through 14 to God's response, 15 through 21. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done unto you. The deed shall return on your own head. For as you drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So the day of the Lord is the time when God will administer a specific punishment. It is coming for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Does it sound like Matthew 7, 12? Uh, so whatever you wish that others will do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets. So pay attention. This isn't just the Edomites. This is a warning to all nations. God says here, you had the nerve to go into my holy place and drink 
and celebrate victory over my people. I'm going to pour the drink of punishment into you. Uh, listen to Second Thessalonians 1.6, what God says to believers. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Let's continue God's judgment. But on Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So there will be a remnant, not the remnant of the restored Judah around 515, and it's not the remnant today of uh, Israel established in 1949, as some may see this. But the Lord says, I'm going to judge the earth, but there will be a remnant. This is coming at the day of the Lord. The house of Jacob, which is Judah's line or the southern kingdom, and the house of Joseph, which is also known as Ephraim or the northern kingdom, they will destroy Edom. Remember the fire mentioned in Amos 1.12? So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Jacob will be a fire, Joseph a flame, sent upon Edom, whom will be. Yes, Israel will be a nation once again, but not Edom. Let's talk about the future of Israel. Verse 19. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Seraphat. This one's interesting. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd, which Hebrew means Spain, but it also means the West. The exiles in the West shall possess the cities of the Negev. So the Negev is where today's modern Israel is. And so it says, they will own the land once known as Edom, and today that is the southern part of Jordan. The Shephelah is where today's modern northern part of Israel is, and they will own what was once the land of the Philistines. Today it's the Gaza Strip, Palestine. They will take the entire west bank of the Jordan River, and that's the interesting one. And the Jews of the west, meaning Spain, uh, will come and possess the cities of Israel. Obadiah 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God will restore his people. God will be there physically with them, and the Savior will be our earthly king. So, what can we learn from this today? Uh, nations fail because of national pride, putting trust in allies, putting trust in advisors, attacking God's people. Do we know any nations today that have pride? Perhaps in a strong military or wealth or their cultural or geographical assets instead of submitting to God who gave it to them? Do we know of nations today that trust in their allies instead of looking at their own citizens first, not looking to God as their protector? Do we know any nations today that trust in the knowledge of the world and reject God's word? Are there any nations today in which God's people are attacked, verbally or physically? God keeps his promises. 
Remember the promise to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Christ is coming first. Now how do we follow this personally? Trust in God, not yourself or your belongings. Have humility, not pride. <clears throat> Trust in God, not allies of the world. Trust in God, not worldly wisdom. Trust in God to love others, even the unlovable. Does this sound like Matthew seven twelve? So whatever you wish that others would do, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophet. <clears throat> Jesus commands us to follow in his example. The Corinthians were having a problem with that. First uh, Corinthians 6, 5, 8. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother? Why not rather suffer wrong? You yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. So don't take your brother to court. It would be better to let yourself be cheated. Now, we may not take things that far, but... When differences arise, the scriptures tell us to seek godly counsel, to settle the matter, bring it Paul as an elder, not as an attorney. Right? <laughs> so forgive your brother. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Hey, I thought about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 14, 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he thought it with tears. So, of you that know means, it goes like this. Esau was prideful. Esau was foolish. Esau was ungodly. Don't be an Esau. Some would get that. So, Obadiah shows us that Esau's despised inheritance became his own destruction. Moses gave us the Ten Commandments. But Jesus summed it up for th like this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This version says great. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law of the prophet. So Now I know that as Christians, we're not bound by Jewish law. But if we truly love God, we've got the first covered, first four covered. And if we truly love our brother, we've got the other six covered. About all I have of the short book of Obadiah, what we can, I guess I'll, I'll let me say a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day. And God bless the, everyone that's here today and, and our brothers and sisters that could not attend. Um, may we continue to learn more and more from your word in both the New and the Old Testament. and receive understanding of these prophecies. In Jesus' name, I